Welcome to Perception Reception. My guest today is Dr. David Ansel. And honestly, my only problem is that his biography is so robust that it could take the entire podcast to go through it. So I'm going to go with just a few highlights. David is Senior Vice President for Community Health Equity at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, and also Associate Provost for Community Affairs at Rush University. And close to my heart, David is Board Chair of Equal Hope, whose mission is to save women's lives by eliminating health disparities in Illinois. And that's a tall order for sure. I proudly serve on that board. David recounted his early career experiences at Cook County Hospital in his critically acclaimed 2011 memoir, County, Life, Death, and Politics at Chicago's Public Hospital. In his second book, The Death Gap, How Inequality Kills, was published in 2017 and looks mighty prophetic these days. Welcome, David. And, and I guess a good place to start is the COVID-19 pandemic, because it's really put health health disparities in Chicago, Metro East, and frankly, most urban areas under a big spotlight. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how disparities in communities of color have significantly boosted the COVID mortality rate. Well, uh, you know, when the pandemic began, no one in the world had any immunity. And so people, of course, think that we're all equally susceptible. But in fact, what we saw, for example, in Chicago, the first 100 deaths, 70 were in Black people. And what that revealed, uh, actually, I said it pulled back the curtain on the pre-existing condition that uh, made some people vulnerable, largely in communities of color, and other, other people safe, multifactorial. But it's the way that uh, historical uh, inequities like structural racism, like economic deprivation, like housing that requires people to live in multifamily housing, like work uh, that was public facing, so-called essential workers, unessential when it comes to paying them, but essential when it comes to getting society to work. And so all COVID did was plant its roots, its seeds in those pre-existing social chasms that determine in the United States and across the world who gets to live and who gets to die. So, I mean, the healthcare disparities, as you just indicated, have been center stage throughout the pandemic. I mean, it, it, you talked about the first 100 deaths, but this has been uh, uh, pretty much a constant, I believe, and not just here, but across the United States. Uh, explain how, uh, a little deeper, how this is a systemic problem. Talk about some of the specific diseases, uh, how they've existed for decades and expanded at, a, at an alarming rate. And uh, indeed your book, The Death Gap, How Inequality Kills, does a pretty solid job of explaining this uh, and was written <laughs> you know, three years before uh, the pandemic hit. So uh, yeah. can you talk a little bit about the depth of the, uh, and breadth of the problem? Yeah, and by the way, it's getting re-released with the introduction by Lori Lightfoot. I uh, bet it is. I bet it is. <laughs> uh, and an afterword about COVID uh, by me. So, so I think next month is coming out in April. First of all, you know what we saw was that Black and uh, Latinx uh, hospitalizations and mortality were multifold higher 
than uh, those experienced by whites and even even some other uh, ethnic groups. And the mortality rates, hospitalization rates were greater, but the mortality rates were greater. And what that had to do were were the conditions under which people work, live, and play that created the exposures. Uh, and then you had the their pre-existing conditions of uh, things like uh, hypertension or diabetes, cardiometabolic disease, which are highly prevalent in these uh, communities, uh, as is uh, things like uh, obesity and other pre-existing medical conditions. Sometimes people didn't know they even had them that put them at uh, at risk. And so I remember at the beginning of the pandemic where everyone was saying, is travel related? Did you travel? It must have been the second week where you could still count you know, on your hands, the number of patients in the hospital. And I want to give you an example of how it actually worked. And I'm going through the list of patients and I say, oh, that's my patient. There's a patient of mine. She's in her 40s. Uh, she has sickle cell anemia. And uh, I said, well, she lives in Garfield Park. And not only by the history does she have it, her husband has it, her kids have it, her mother has it because they all live in a household together. And then I sort of read down the history, and she works as a baggage handler at O'Hare, likely taking the L back every day. She caught it at O'Hare, probably at one of those big super spreader events, and brought it into her community. And then within her community, it spread like wildfire because people traveled in public transportation, they were exposed in households. And then, you know, people with the pre existing conditions actually got sick and died. And now you add on to this, where is healthcare available? This uh, patient of mine uh, happened to be a patient at Rush, so she could get to the best care possible. But there were people in some neighborhoods, some communities, uh, where if they were Latinx, they might have been afraid to go to the doctor uh, because of issues around citizenship. I know in Black neighborhoods in Chicago, uh, there were times that people went to a hospital that just didn't have the capabilities, and those hospitals found themselves unable to transfer the patients. Uh, you know, you add up all of these things, and you get, you know, a pandemic, which, as we've seen, has killed over uh, 530,000 people as of this date. But more than that, it's dropped life expectancy. The death gap, one year for white people, 2.7 years for black people across the United States. So, the actual chance of living a long life has been decreased uh, in 2.4 years for uh, Latinx population. So this is uh, a equal opportunity killer that kills uh, in uh, unequal ways because of the conditions uh, under which people live, work, play, uh, and their underlying health conditions. I'm wondering if we can now maybe get a little more granular you don't just talk about disparities in equity. You actually decided to do something about it. And you started uh, what is now Equal Hope. And I, I'd like to have you maybe talk a little bit about uh, how the not-for-profit has expanded its vision and mission since it was originally launched as the Metropolitan Chicago Breast Cancer Task Force. And if you can in particular, because I think it's really vitally important if you can talk about the grassroots uh, approach and methodology uh, that's at the heart of uh, Equal Hope. Yes, well, many years ago now, uh, probably <clears throat> 2005, 2006, we knew that there was a gap 
in mortality uh, in breast cancer between black women and white women. But the other thing we knew, there was a gap that hadn't existed in the 1980s, began to grow from zero to a growing gap in the 1990s by the early 2000s, a gaping gap in Chicago. And of course, if you looked at the prevalent thought, uh, everyone thought that the this was due to the fact that breast cancer in black women tended to be uh, more aggressive, uh, more difficult to treat, more estrogen receptor negative. And uh, the problem, uh, if you believed all the pundits and the scientists, was the problem resided within the woman. And the job was to fix her biology and her genetics. But uh, a brilliant uh, epidemiologist, a friend of mine named Steve Whitman, who I had brought to Mount Sinai to lead the Sinai Urban Health Institute, and I decided to study the matter. And it took us a long time to wait to, uh, that we could assemble the data. And we decided uh, that this probably was not a question of biology, but was a question of structural racism and access to quality healthcare. And we created a task force, and that task force uh, did a nine-month study of the problem in Chicago, much to the chagrin of the other cancer agencies around that. But we, we did uh, come to the conclusion that it was access to care, uh, the quality uh, of that care uh, for diagnosis and treatment, and the quality of the treatment itself that was uh, at risk. And we decided to create a task force because to solve a complex problem of, for example, uh, Black women's breast cancer mortality required a, a comprehensive group of thinkers around a common table. It couldn't just be one institution. Uh, it couldn't be just institution. It needed to be the community. Uh, and we need to get the voice of the community because the community was telling us something very different uh, than was in the literature. Where I go get my care uh, isn't high quality. They don't treat you with respect. They don't offer the same kind of treatments. It takes me three bus rides. So we heard all kinds of things, and we decided to go about and trying uh, to try to address that uh, with the task force. And that's been the work over the past 14 years or so uh, that's gotten us to this place now where we've seen a reduced mortality for Black women uh, and breast cancer. But we've decided that's not enough, that we needed to not, uh, not just be focused on breast cancer, but focus more broadly on women's health. We're focusing on cervical cancer now, but also getting women uh, into medical homes. But I wanted to just speak about something you mentioned, which is, I think, core to the philosophy. And, you know, this comes from the disability movement, and it comes from uh, what happens when you get out of your ivory tower and talk to people. Uh, there's a, a, a phrase, nothing about us without us. And we really believe that the, we need to be led by the voice of the community. And that work, by the way, helped not only inspire the work of the task force, now Equal Hope, but inspired the COVID work in the city of Chicago. The way that the city uh, put together its COVID response around a table with community voices, with providers, with the city, the racial equity rapid response was based on a model that we developed and nurtured within Equal Hope. So the very successful Protect Chicago Plus really has some genesis in, in the Equal Hope model. It has a 100% genesis. Everyone said when we started Equal Hope Breast Cancer Task Force, you can't do that. There's no way that this is about the quality of care 
this is biological. Because obviously, back to that thing, if it's in the woman, you have to fix the woman. But if it's in the system, you have to fix the system. We went about fixing the system. But that inspiration led uh, Rush and a bunch of other hospitals to create something called Westside United, a racial health equity collaborative, which partners hospitals with communities to go after many, many life expectancy gaps. And the mayor of Chicago called upon Westside United to help set the table for the city's COVID response. So if you want to see it, it was birthed within Equal Hope, but the ideas have spread not only within Equal Hope, because there's a lot more to do, but literally across the city of Chicago and the nation. Well, it's proving to be very uh, successful with regard to Protect Chicago Plus. We still have a long way to go, but uh, that commitment uh, and identifying those 15 communities with the highest risk of uh, serious illness and death has uh, uh, definitely been a game changer for, uh, for Chicago. Yes. And we did that with Equal Hope, too. We identified by getting people to submit data. We could, which is aligned with how Protect Chicago Plus is done, data-driven. We, in Equal Hope, we got the hospitals to submit data. We knew who was accredited and who wasn't. We could tell who was providing high-quality care and who wasn't. And we set about then to go into those communities to improve what was happening at those places and actually navigate people uh, where, where needed into better care. And that made all the difference in the world. And Chicago's the only city in the country that has seen a reduced mortality gap from breast cancer. The black-white gap is narrowed. And that's largely because the black rates of breast cancer mortality have decreased faster than the white rates have gone down. And that's not seen in any of the large cities in which we evaluated this. And we think that this model is a model... Uh, for the city of Chicago across many, many different diseases. The the thing that strikes me is not only the community focus, uh, David, but it's really uh, quintessentially grassroots. I mean, can you spend a minute and talk about the navigators? Because I think uh, that really distinguishes this program. It's, it's, it's boots on the ground. And I, I just believe that it matters a whole bunch. Yeah. So what is structural racism? And why does it kill people early? Well, it's structural because it's actually designed in almost in an automatic way into our policies, our procedures, our norms and values, the way things work around here. It's a form of uh, causes premature mortality because people are harmed at multiple points along their lives by being exposed to the system. Now, you can talk about it all you want but you got to change it. But one way that structural racism works is that the resources are are located far away from where the people in need are. And the resources that are left in those communities are often degraded, uh, not because they're bad people, because they don't have the ability to capitalize, to get the newest equipment, to get the better doctors, the specialists, and all the things you need for cancer care. And then if our whole healthcare system is only navigable by the most sophisticated people. And even then it's hard. I mean, think how hard it's been for you sometimes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? I could write I mean, a book it, myself about that. <laughs> you could write a book about yourself and here you are, skilled, talented, you know, resourced, 
But imagine that you're a woman who's not resourced, who's gotten crummy care in the neighborhood, and then you don't know where to go. And you go to an emergency room and someone says, don't worry about it. And it's the breast cancer. So the navigators are critically important because our system repels people. And you think about it. We've designed the, the most expensive health system in the world, and we need people to navigate in because it's so problematic. But I think it's an important idea. The navigators don't reside within a healthcare system. They reside within equal hope. They find a woman in a community. And this, I think, is a critical piece to our success, why the mortality rate has gone down. Because while we did improve the quality at many of these smaller decapitalized or undercapitalized places, what we did is we found women and navigated them into a breast cancer treatment center of excellence. And then women heard about it through word of mouth, go here, don't go here. But our navigators actually navigate through, I call it, the system repels people. And a normal human being could never find her way to the best care easily, particularly if you're coming from an under-resourced community. That's critical to our success. It's a shame that we need navigators, but that's what we did. We, We couldn't change the underlying nature of the system but we could help people get in. And those navigators do more than take people in. They sit there during the visit. They're patient advocates. Uh, They're there to hold uh, the patient's hand, to be a listening ear from the beginning to the end of treatment. It's made a big, big difference. Well, I may be subjective, but I hope that everybody who's listening to this will uh, go and visit the uh, Equal Hope webpage and this is a definitely an enterprise that deserves and 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 needs support from the community. So I, you're, a, you know, in communications. I got a call today yeah. from one of the original reporters who reported on this in 2007. She was the leading health reporter of Chicago Tribune, and she got all these counter voices that said it's biological. And I and she didn't use the word racism in her article, and I chided her. And she's coming back to write a follow-up story all these years later. And I, I sent her on to Anne-Marie uh, as well. But I, I said, no one believed what we said was true because the dominant narrative in this country reinforces itself over and over again. No one could believe that the mammogram in a different place could be read that where Black men were going to get their care could be different than the mammogram state of Northwestern Russia, you will see. And what we were, we set off to do was to prove that it was true. It was the most far-fetched hypothesis at the time. Everyone thought it was biological because it's actually easier to believe that Black women's biology was different rather than accept the fact that we had a system through its institutional and structural racism that prevented women from getting in. Therefore, everything we designed was designed around the idea that we needed to navigate women and advocate for them to get the same quality that everyone else got. And when they did, they got better outcomes. Now, I mean, you're also, David, uh, Senior Vice President for Community Health Equity at Rush. And, and so how, how does that work synergistically? So you, you're the chairman of Equal Hope, chairman of the board, you're senior vice president at Rush. 
how does it all work together, you know, in a, in a hopefully a holistic way? Well, you asked a great question. So think about it. I was the inaugural chief medical officer at Rush, the doctor for the hospital. The goal was to be number one in quality, which we've achieved by objective measures. And in, in many years, uh, we've certainly been in the top 10 in the country, but in the last few years, number one in the country and a U.S. News and World Report honor roll hospital. But I gave up being chief medical officer because the lessons from Equal Hope were that we needed to fundamentally change the way the system worked. You know, once you got into the rush system, you get great care. But all of those steps before that contribute to the bad outcomes. Imagine, you know, you could have the best breast program in the country, and yet women are dying of breast cancer at unnatural rates. Uh, And so uh, the lesson from Equal Hope made me think we could do this on a broader scale. And uh, our board, uh, our senior leaders have decided to take on health equity as a strategy to really address the community determinants of health, take on structural racism and the others factors, and try to build a better system, not just across breast cancer and cervical cancer like Equal Hope's trying to do and medical home, but across the whole spectrum. It's ambitious. You know, here we are having achieved what our goal was in our prior strategy, saying it's not enough, largely because, and we, and we, every time we say, why did we do this? Because we had this lesson from equal hope. We knew if we did it in a different way, forming these complex partnerships, you know, really being clear on root causes. And then going to the difficult task of doing system improvement. And so that's what happened to me at Rush. It was all from equal hope. And, and I mean, that is a great segue because the, the, the last big topic I want to cover today is uh, the legislation that was introduced by the Black Caucus in the last Illinois General Assembly, passed by both chambers, amazingly, and signed by Governor Pritzker. And there's now an opportunity to transform healthcare on the south and west sides of Chicago in Metro East. And it raises the question of what that needs to look like to be both effective, but also sustainable. I mean, it's, you know, I, you don't want to get the quick fix here. This isn't like flipping on a light switch. So how do you deal with uh, the underlying risk factors as well as the medical issues? more doctors who look like the people in the communities that are serving, all of those issues. I mean, you're involved on on the West side, we're involved in the South side health transformation project. What needs to happen here in order to have this work and be sustainable over the long haul? Well, let's just say that Medicaid transformation is incremental improvement, but hopefully you can build on something year after year here and, and also acknowledge that the dollar amount is small relative to the, the need. And, you know, there's a, what's called the wrong pocket problem, that the money in Medicaid is going into the pockets of the insurance companies to a large degree, and they're not going to the pockets of either the institutions, more than that, the pockets of the people who need, who need the help. Much of the diseases uh, that we're navigating through Medicaid transformation are the same diseases that put people at risk uh, during COVID and are driven again by 
uh, the social conditions, poverty, economic deprivation, concentrated poverty in neighborhoods, and the lack of lack of wealth. So it's, it's unlikely that Medicaid transformation is going to solve all of this. But we can start with the following. One is we should take a federated approach to the delivery of health care in a stepwise manner, whether it be transfers of critically ill people. We saw during COVID that most of the big hospitals did not take the sickest patients. We did it rush. We took a thousand transfers during this time. A hundred we took from ventilator to ventilator unit. But there were many people who died unnecessarily in Chicago because they couldn't access that higher level of care. We That's one thing we could improve. How subspecialty care is organized, how people get access to that, we can improve that, not only for Medicaid, but for the uninsured. But it's got to be a federated approach, everybody in, uh, nobody out. But until we get those dollars moving to support not just medical care, but the social needs that uh, patients and families find themselves with, we're not going to get to where we need to go. But it's a start. And we can't artificially divide the west side and the south side of the city as if people don't cross, you know, those imaginary zones or even the suburbs, you know, Cicero Avenue being one of the western uh, dividing lines and Austin Avenue, you know, people move across borders. But I think it's a start and hopefully what it will do is get providers working more closely together, particularly around those diseases for which we can do better. But in the end, Medicaid transformation will work if it does what Equal Hope does, navigate people into medical homes. There are a lot of people who are covered by Medicaid, a lot of people who aren't insured, who do not have a medical home. Because sometimes that's the first time you find you have high blood pressure, you have diabetes. Many people we saw with COVID didn't know they had those conditions. And so we, we have to stay focused in Medicaid transformation in navigating people from community-based organizations, from hospitals into medical homes and let them get their basic primary care treatment uh, that's going to hopefully mitigate the need for hospitalization down the road. That's a mouthful, but that's what I think has to happen. And hopefully it builds upon each other uh, year after year. And I presume that you also feel that community health workers are very important. I mean, that that grassroots element to health transformation is a key. Yes. So I think on the West side, I'll tell you what we're thinking about. Uh, we want to apply a federated approach, focusing on navigating folks from hospitals to medical homes, from hospitals to higher level of care, and from medical homes to specialty care with the FQHCs and the hospitals with a federated network with everybody in and nobody out. So that's the one we got using care coordination teams and community health workers. So that's the, that's the idea and technology supported so that uh, the navigation can occur more seamlessly, closed loop. We're gonna focus on the conditions that are harming people right now, cardiometabolic disease, maternal infant health, addiction, and behavioral health things. But that's the big idea we're going to do. But community health workers and navigators, just like with an equal hope, are the core uh, of the workforce and the, the solution to the problem. And last question, what, what, what role do you see for telehealth in this equation? 
And also, I presume that health literacy is also important because, I mean, ultimately, you need to have people change their lifestyles as well and understand what they, what they need to do to get there and what the ramifications are if they don't. Here, here's what I'm going to say. You know, the problem is us. Shame on us if we don't do better, given the resources we have. And this is not a deficiency problem. It's an abundance problem, poorly distributed. I think there's a place for telehealth. Um, and I think there's a place to improve health literacy and all of this. I think the opportunity for people is honestly to get into medical homes uh, one way or another. Uh, and I think technology can help that. The opportunity to do video visits or telephone visits is critically important. And maybe take you back to COVID just for a second here, because we learned a lot about COVID. When COVID hit and the racial equity rapid response team was formed around the table, actually, they asked Westside United, we had a, we had a Sunday night phone call with the mayor's team because she had gone to her, t- her staff and said, what should we do when she saw the disproportionate black deaths? She said, it takes your breath away. And uh, she asked her staff and they came up with ideas. She said, it's not good enough. Call Westside United. We got on the phone with her on a Sunday night, uh, the, the mayoral staff. And by the way, everything I learned, I learned at Equal Hope. So we just gave her the, the example of the setup uh, to do. And one of the things we decided around the provider group, so I co-chaired the provider group, is say, if we have vulnerable patients out there, we shouldn't wait for the patients to call us. We should call them. And we called across all the providers in those early days of the pandemic, 75,000 families to check in who are most vulnerable patients living in the most vulnerable zip codes proactively. Now imagine Medicaid transformation. We're not waiting for the patient to come in, but we call them up. We check in on them. And now it doesn't have to be video. It could be a simple phone call, but that is, while it seems mundane, it's revolutionary. And yeah. that's the kind of work we need to be doing in the future. And, uh, and, and then when you're calling them up, you say, did you have your pap smear? Did you have your mammogram? Well, let me help you get it set up. Imagine how many lies we would save because the illiterate ones here are us. Yeah. Amen to that. That, that. That's a good place for us to, to end yeah. up. Uh, and I think you know what, what a believer I am in the grassroots approach. And so I'm glad we had an opportunity to discuss it. David Ansel, Dr. David Ansel, I am delighted that you were able to do this. And I am so proud to be on the board of Equal Hope. Thank you for serving. And thank you for being my friend as well, because you know being on the board is good. Being my friend that lasts for a lifetime. So thank you. Thank you.